the State of the Art podcast. Uh, you have Arcadio Rodriguez and David Stillman here, and we have a very exciting podcast ahead of us today. We will be talking to Dr. Pam Jones of the School of Music here at the University of Utah. Unfortunately, we were unable to interview Dr. Hartke from the University of Southern California. Um, he was unable to make it, even though we are very excited to do a podcast with him. Yeah, we're really looking forward to talking to uh, Stephen Hartke. Um, sadly, he had a <clears throat> a uh, family emergency come up, which was really a bummer because I had a lesson with him, and he was going to do a talk on his music, and it was going to be a great time, but alas, he was not able to make it, so hopefully he will be uh, dropping by soon because um, it would be great to talk to him as a composer of great recognition, uh, a lot of awards, and uh, just a lot of cool stuff that he's gotten. Um, so yeah, but um, for now, we will um, go ahead and talk to Dr. Pam Jones, who we were meaning to talk to regardless. We just did it sooner now. Um, Dr. Jones is great. Um, uh, we mentioned in the podcast, um, pretty much everybody has to study with her. She teaches uh, musicianship and music theory, amongst other classes. Those are just the main two that most people have to take in order to fulfill their bachelor requirements. Um, but yeah, we had a really interesting talk with her. Um, Dr. Jones is not somebody that, that's particularly of the composer or co composition department, so that's one reason we wanted to get her in here, because she is really influential in, in, in everybody that studies here. <clears throat> so we wanted to get her thoughts on new, new music and music in general. And she's, you know, somebody that's been involved in, in music for, for decades. And just so there's a lot of knowledge and wisdom there to take away from her. Um, so, yeah, one thing uh, I wanted to mention is that um, before we talked to Dr. Jones, we had um, done an interview with Dr. Devin Maxwell. Um, sadly, due to some technical difficulties, a.k.a. us still trying to figure out how to do this, um, we do not have an episode to show for it. Um, so we will attempt to talk to him again in the near future and put that up. Um, the reason I bring it up is because in the, uh, the talk with Dr. Jones, we do reference our conversation with Dr. Maxwell um, multiple times. So just so uh, you as listeners are aware, that is... We are what we are alluding to is a non-existent episode, but nonetheless a conversation that did happen in real life. Exactly, and it was actually a great conversation, and we're excited to do another one with Dr. Devin Maxwell. Um, and then before we begin this podcast, we also want to apologize for a couple interruptions throughout. We do um, have one studio here at the University of Utah School of Music, and it is a shared studio space. Um, so we did have a colleague of ours that needed to get in a couple times, and and unfortunately um, that did kind of interrupt the podcast, but we kept going nonetheless. And um, and uh, we so there, there, there's two interruptions. Yeah. One of them is the first one is very subtle, the second one is more intrusive. Um, but yeah, he just left his trombone in here, and he needed to come and get it, which it's fine. We can't really expect, we can't really just hog. Yeah. the the studio it's you know it's it's for all of us and and so that's probably going to be a recurring theme amongst these podcasts because we usually record those during quote-unquote business hours so during the day 
usually right now when we record these intros and outros, right now it's almost 10 p.m., so not a lot of people roaming the halls of uh, David Gardner Hall. So no interruptions for this one. Usually it'd be actually be pretty surprising if somebody were to walk in right now. Exactly. Um, but yeah, um, with Dr. Jones, though, on our talk, <clears throat> it's really great to talk to a performer. Dr. Jones is great about um, playing new music for us when when we write a piece and, and we want her perform to perform it, um, not just us, other composers. She, she's she's done a lot of new music stuff. She also does a lot of early music stuff. Um, she's, she's a really versatile player and just an all-around amazing human being. I'm so lucky to have to have her here and have had um, the opportunity to, to take, I think I took like three or four classes from her and be able to sit down and talk to her. And she was great. She was a good sport. Um, we had a great conversation. We talked about performance practice, pop music versus art music, the democratization of music, um, uh, some administrative tips that she gave us as far as how we can further um, continue to enrich the composition area here and uh yeah welcome to our podcast pam jones dr pam jones um we're here to talk about music talk about music in the university of utah talk about music in salt lake city and we figured we'd talk with you because you're such an integral part of of this school of music and you've taught a lot of the students here and you're going to be teaching a lot more students many many more and yeah, uh, dr jones is kind of like the Nadia Boulanger of, of the <laughs> University of Utah. Exactly. Everybody yeah, has to go study with her. <laughs> That's true. I think I probably have like 80% of all of the freshmen and sophomores who come through the doors at one point or another. And all of them have nothing but great things to say about her, though. Exactly. That's, that's great. So Dr. Jones is a keyboard player primarily. You play piano, harpsichord, mm-hmm. anything else? Well, in college, I actually used to play clarinet in the, the band here. And I also was in the marching band for four years. I remember and, that. Yeah. yeah. So, you, so you graduated from University mm-hmm. of Utah? Did my bachelor's here. Okay, mm-hmm. great. I used to play sax in jazz band. I uh, probably haven't touched that since I was 17, but... Great, and then Dr. Jones teaches the... You teach a couple of the three classes and the musicianship classes. Mm-hmm. Is there any other ones that you teach? Yeah, so I teach the first and second year theory musicianship students and then I teach the doctoral students a performance practice seminar that's really my specialty okay performance practice what kind of st- like what, what does that semester so or that class look like um it's really fun it's the study of historical practicing styles by um studying um the old surviving documents that we have written documents paintings um biographies, things like that, and attempt to figure out how popular music was performed in its own time. Mm. Um, and we do a lot of playing in that class as well as part of it. And when I first started um, down the path of studying performance practice, this was a long time ago, and I, I went, it was in the mid-80s, I went to UCLA for my master's degree, and it was a performance degree in performance practice. It was a hybrid musicology performance degree. And um, I think performance practice as a subject was sort of, um, not in its infancy, but it certainly wasn't in its full flowering as it is now where everyone studies it so that everyone can learn how to play in all the styles and be very versatile. Back, back in that time, it was more of a specialty thing that you would specialize in this little niche of historical performance um, 
and whatnot. But that's when I did start to play the harpsichord, um, as well as the piano. But now nowadays we look at it, you know, 30 years later, as as um, as I, meant, I j just mentioned, um, a way for today's performers to become versatile in all of the historical styles as well as in, in their own time as well. And so what really pleases me, since I'm sitting here with two very fine composers, um, and I just have to say, you two were two of my favorite students. Thanks. <laughs> I'm not making that up. You That's really great. Um, but uh, what really pleases me is um, when performers today have an interest in um, all styles, including um, even pop music and things like that. Um, I think it, if one is more versatile, then you have a better chance of, of making a career for yourself nowadays. And I also feel like since the advent of, of uh, things like, say for example, YouTube, um, internet, um, Facebook, ways to publicize yourself in your own art forms and your own compositions and your own performances, um, I think it's a great time actually to be a musician. We've seen um, a lot of people say like uh, a Utah group, the piano guys. Hmm. Um, they would not have been able to have a, a career the way that they do in any other time period until this internet time with the web. Um, and that goes for, that's pretty much the way now I think people market themselves now rather than having to go through an intermediary like a producer or a, or a record company or, or whatever, you really do have the freedom to um, market your own works and your own art and, and really you can make a fine living at it as a composer or a performer that way. It's, it's really a great opportunity and it's a great time, I think, for you guys to be entering into the workforce and, and figuring out how your career is gonna go. And I think it opens a lot of doors. That's interesting, because <clears throat> that last, when we talked to Dr. Maxwell, that was another uh, uh, thing that popped up, is just how the internet and this internet era has affected um, musicians and music making. Um, and it's it's kind of a, I don't know where I stand, because I, I, I love that anybody can just go up and make music, but I kind of hate it at the same time, mm -hmm. because it's just like, anybody can make music, and it's, it's, a, it's, it's kind of a, it's, it's a weird always, subject for me. It's always a challenge when, you know, it, the, the standards are lower, and I know this really dates me, but I really feel like um, a lot of the pop music that I hear on the radio now um, doesn't really interest me the way that a lot of the um, well-produced 70s and 80s pop music interested me more because yeah. people had skills in those yeah. recordings. Um, so, in that, in that and I'm, of course, overgeneralizing because I, I also realized that the really fabulous popular music is not played on the radio now, but people have access to get it other places, and so it's familiar. But um, it, that is a problem, as you mentioned, when the, 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 the quality can go down when you know everybody can just make their own. But by the same token, um, I think that if you're a trained musician, the, the quality is very fine and, and, and you still have just as good of a chance to get your works out there as 
anyone else. Whereas that used to be more difficult because you would need a lot of money to, my brother-in-law used to work in the 70s for A&M Records and you needed at least back in that time, at least $20,000 just to even start a project at a recording studio in Los Angeles. And, and um, you know, that that's not really something that you all have a pot of money to do that yeah. with. But, but now, you know, it's a little different. You don't really need to do that anymore. Yeah. Well, that, that's one, one thing that I noticed from, like, if we look back at, like, the classical period, even up to the romantic period, one thing that was constant during those time periods up till like, around the 20th, 20th century and 21st century was patronage. Right. Where um, composers could be paid just to be a composer for a certain... Uh, wealthy family or the church or whatever the king whatever it was so patronage I think at a, at a to a certain degree established kind of a like a baseline of like what's what's common practice and what's tasteful or, or something like that which and in the modern era we, we I think we've lost a little bit and but again there's there's pros and cons to that so there's more freedom towards whatever music one ends up making but there's also you know this is something that as composers we find that too much freedom can be detrimental as well um, and so sometimes you got to give yourself you know you got to narrow your scope and give yourself limitations um, and yeah like like we said on the, uh, when I was talking about Dr. Maxwell I think we're just right now we're we're in that place where we're trying to figure out how we can limit without hindering um, without leaving everything open everything up to you know everything up to everything is available you can do anything um, so yeah, that, that's one thing. I, w I wanted to go back to your, your uh, performance practice class. So um, you guys there focus mostly on like Baroque, classical? Yeah, like we, we focus maybe between um, a 300 year period of time, 1600 to about World War One-ish. Um, the reason we don't go earlier, we could, except for most people are instrumentalists and, and really um, Renaissance is more of a vocal genre. If, mm -hmm. if we have choral conductors who are interested in going earlier, we, we do it. Um, the reason we stop in the 20th century is because um, at this point we actually have surviving recordings, video, audio, um, a lot of written documentation. Um, you know, nowadays even newspaper, newspapers from the 20th century are, are being digitized and whatnot, so you have um, a lot of it, more information than you do in all the other times. And here at the University of Utah, we also have a new music ensemble. So we have an active performing group that specializes in that as well. So I, uh, my focus is more on the historical end of it, yes. Mm. Great. Yeah, historical, uh, sorry. Music from, you know, that era, 1600s to early 20th century is very important and, and yeah like you said I mean all the music written in the 20th century has been digitized or published very thoroughly. Um, I want to kind of pose a question to the two of you okay. because you know we're like we're talking about this historical music and and in our mind some of it has been canonized you know almost mm -hmm. as if it were um, the holy scriptures of music you know especially with yeah. the, the Beethoven symphonies and and those, you know, great German composers. Um, but in its day, it was pop music. Now, as a composer, um, we probably need to talk about the elephant in the room here because you're, you are trained in academia at a university. 
and you're laughing. <laughs> um, but it's true. Well, let's just talk about it. It's a real issue for, yeah. for composers. So you're trained in academia in the fundamentals of historical styles, basically, and, and I think that's very important. And then you go out uh, into the world and write the things of your own time that we like to hear in the 21st century. Um, and there's kind of a, how do I say it? Um, in the, sometimes in the past, during the 20th century, we had such a split between art music and pop music. But if you, but let's be honest, if you're a composer, don't you like to write the things of your culture and, and don't you want to have a career in writing music and, you know, like that. And so it's something that I know you guys have to deal with a lot. And that's another reason why I think that it's a great time to be alive as a composer because you have so many venues for um, commercial venues that require music, that enhance the quality of commercials on TV or movies or my son goes to school here, he's majoring in video game design, video game music, which I believe Dr. Maxwell had a lot of, uh, or some background in that as well, some experience with yeah. that. And, and um, you know, the things that are in our culture now all, that all require music, um, that it, there's quite a bit, you know. The one, the one venue to you that's the most difficult um, is trying to get a job in academia. But maybe that's not what every composer major needs to be aspiring to because there are so many other avenues for your talents and gifts that you could go. And not to mention the fact that both of you are also very good performers in your own right. Well, at least used to be. You need to practice. Well, David's had a baby, so that's why he's got a little baby now, so um, that kind of takes away practice time, shall we say. <laughs> but... But you guys are both great performers on your own. So, you know, you as a musician, I've learned that you have that we are very versatile people. You can have many jobs and and kind of patchwork together a very nice lifestyle with with several different things that you can do. Um, oh, sorry. No, you got it. Yeah, I, I was gonna say. So, yeah, kind of talking about this elephant in the room. Um, I feel like maybe what you're meaning is, yeah, because like, as composers, we're trained to want to write academic music, atonal, whatever, um, electronic, whereas a lot of performers don't like to hear that, or don't like to play that, especially here. Um, but that we should also keep in mind all these other opportunities out in the world, like film music, video game music, stuff like that. And I, for one, love that idea, and that's something I want to do. Um, but yeah, it just brings up this interesting question, like, like for those that don't want to do stuff like that, for those that want to write electronic music, experimental music, it's hard for them to find good avenues where they can make a career. Um, well, it's also possible. It's it's a niche that some some performers specialize in, and there are certain audiences that really appreciate that. Um, it's very sophisticated music in a, in a lot of ways that that takes. Um, an educated audience to know what they're hearing to, to appreciate yeah. it and like it. But there, there's those kind of audiences are certainly out there. Exactly. The, the thing to me is I, I think like going back to probably like the beginning of the 20th century, um, music 
like started losing like losing little by little the its creative art aspect and started more and more becoming a commercial product. Mm -hmm. And at that point, when you when you look at most of the top pop music that we have now, it's all very and, and, and there's you know there's obviously different uh, variations to, to whatever it is, but a lot of it is very you know there's not a lot of depth there. there there's you know these sort of calculated sort of um, it's almost serialist in a sense with uh, except that their <laughs> their their end goal is to sell as many downloads or whatever exactly. they, they want to do. Um, and I think for me when I think about it, like I'm, I'm obviously I'm, I'm not opposed to, to pop music. I think there's a lot of pop artists and pop acts out there that that really do take themselves seriously as, a, as an artist and aren't just looking to to make a product to make money they're, they're looking to express themselves and push music to where it can go to its boundaries um, but at the same time uh, it's kind of to me it feels like I could have went and done that without having to go to school for four years and so at a, at a, to a point I do want to like be able to exert the sort of education and, and knowledge that I gathered from being here um, and not but uh, but yeah, like you know, video game music, all that stuff is open, and like I'm I'm not in a place to turn down any sort of commissions or anything like that, for whatever project it may be. But I think what you were trying to get to, uh, Dr. Jones, was kind of um, how maybe composers, and and I've noticed this, and, and I'm sure everybody notices it that, that we can be very opinionated, we can be somewhat elitist, we can be somewhat uh, stubborn. And, and we, you know, a lot of the times we, we, we we're only worried about, we're very selfish, I think, with, with whatever we're doing creatively, um, which I think is something that we should have, but to a degree, and, and we have to keep ourselves in check, um, because what I found that started happening when serialism and electronic music came in is that a lot of composers figured that they just don't need performers. If people don't like the way their music sounds and people can't perform their music because it's so hard, then they're just gonna get a machine to do it. And I, I like electronic music and there's a lot to be done with electronic music. Uh, I think it's like the modern orchestra for the modern composer because of the amount of colors and whatever you can do on it are pretty much endless. Um, but at the same time, I don't believe in just going to electronic music because I refuse to engage with fellow human beings in my musical community in a decent way, mm -hmm. and 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 because I refuse to listen to their opinions or, or whatever they have to say, I, I mean I, I still think that music making is a is a communal effort, and we need performers and we need patrons and we need music makers and we need people to listen to it. And there's a lot of aspects that go to it, so that's kind of um, that's been sort of like a realization that I've had as of late that. Not all new music, academic music, has to be super cerebral and complex. There's still space for ideas to be simple and new and somewhat original without putting off everybody else other than yourself. Oh, yes, I totally agree with that. And um, it always pleases me when I attend the, the um, co composer concerts here, whether it's faculty or student composers' concerts. And unfortunately, I wasn't able to go to the one, was it last night? Monday. Monday night. I was. I it's the first one I've missed in like five years. But it it just really pleases me every year when I go. I hear such a wide variety of of styles presented and really wonderful music that's engaging and appealing. And I've actually uh, helped to perform a lot of the student music that's been written and um, the performers also seem to enjoy it because it's. Um, 
how am I going to lead this into, uh, keep that thought. What I'm going to lead this into is, it's my hope that uh, your generation will become the, um, the people that uh, determine and, and change and make the music of our own day, the popular music or whatever, uh, really fine quality again. Um, because I think, you know, in our own time, it's really hard to see where it's going and, and, and whatnot in, in relationship to history because we're living it right now. But I have this feeling that since um, computer age, you know, really came to full flowering starting in the 1990s and the first decade of the 21st century, and, and your generation grew up, you know, totally immersed, you're, you're digital natives, and I'm a digital immigrant. Um, but at that time when, you know, people played around with computers and figured out how to make music, even, and, you know, that's when the, the level maybe temporarily just kind of dropped with the mm. pop stuff. But who better to write really great, fabulous music than people who are trained that really, um, you know, have fine skills, fine performing skills, fine compositional skills. And so I'm hopeful that... that um, that, um, and it, I think it has started. There's a lot of self-published uh, and self-produced music that's being made worldwide that people have just done on their own who are trained people that's really, really great stuff. And now I'm going to link it back to um, the uh, composer concerts that I've been to here um, and how much that I have enjoyed helping out with these events and how much the other players here have enjoyed having stuff that's not just easy and uh, simple sounding, but something that's challenging and engaging and interesting to also the performers. It's, it's really great stuff that, that you guys have done here. Thank you. Um, I do want to propose two questions really quickly based off of that. Um, a lot of times we have conversations, Arcadio and I and, you know, our, and the other composers, that we feel like there's a gap between composers and performer. Mm -hmm. Now, do you believe that that is a figment of our imagination? Or? Well, what kind of a gap are you referring to? So I feel like anybody that's not a composition major or not, not everybody, okay. There's, there's, a, there's a very vast majority of people that aren't composers and don't go through those don't go into like 20th and 21st century uh -huh. music as deep as we do, that they have a sort of preconceived notion of what our music is gonna sound like. Um, and it's always sort of either atonal mm -hmm. or very difficult or you know, you know, know, like unnecessarily virtuosic. Um, and so I think, I think that, that that sort of mentality is, is there with a lot of, of performance majors to that where that makes it difficult for us mm -hmm. when the composer's concert's coming up for us to be able to um, like just be like, just ask people to play our pieces because I feel like they're already, and whenever somebody sees a piece of mine, I can always tell that, that that's not what they're <laughs> expecting because I feel like they're expecting, they're always expecting Schoenberg because that's, yeah. I think that's the last composer that really gets drilled mm -hmm. in like music history classes and the theory classes and stuff like that. And then, and, and I understand there's a lot of stuff going on 20th century, 21st music across, you know, there's just even just, just in the United States, there's a lot of stuff to cover like in a semester, you know, there's a lot of information there. Um, so I, I definitely understand pragmatically why it is that we kind of stop at Schoenberg. Um, but yeah, so 
yeah, do, do you also kind of see that? I think that's what David was going to yeah. ask. And, and, and. Uh, yeah, but I think it's a little different reason for me personally than what you just articulated, although um, there probably would be a bit of a fear factor. But for me personally, it's I, I, I might get someone who said, hi, um, my concert's in three days. Can yeah. you play for me? Yeah. That's and problem. that's probably where a lot of the problem comes from, and I and it's really hard, um, but it's better if you can give people a little bit longer time to learn it. Mm-hmm. Now, last year I, I learned a harpsichord piece by uh, Igor. What, what yeah, was it? No, the other oh. one. Igor the Mar- the, the lesser. Igor the lesser. We had two Igors last year, so Marquez. Marquez, uh, yeah. yeah, and he he's a he's in New York now. It, it, Cindy Buffalo, I think, working on a PhD. So, Igor, the lesser, <laughs> wrote wrote a harpsichord piece, and it was very very difficult. Thankfully, he gave it to me like three months ahead of time, and I spent a lot of time on it. It was so hard, but I'm kind of proud of it. Um, when the we actually ended up having to play it on the piano because it required a, a rather large harpsichord with a double manual, and we could not get the harpsichord in the elevator. It was too long. Oh, wow. And so the last minute, we ended up playing on the piano. But um, it, it took me a long time to learn it. It was, it was just notationally very hard, but uh, I was proud of the finished product that, number one, I could actually get through it and try to... Um, and I worked with him too, and that's another pleasure of actually working with a composer who has a very specific idea of, of the impulse that led to the creation of it, and, mm-hmm. and, and in, the, in the mind of the composer, how it should go. It's always a privilege to kind of work directly with the composer, which is one of the benefits of playing music that our composers here in the School of Music um, compose. So, um, I've also, though, noticed that students here are usually very happy to help perform their works that are very honored that they got asked. Um, so I think that the, the gap, maybe originally from a performer's point of view, is, well, I don't have time to learn this right now because mm-hmm. I've got to learn the Brahms yeah. Violin Concerto and yeah. juries are in two weeks and so on and so forth. Um, that would, that's the, the gap I notice the mm-hmm. most, from my end anyway. Yeah, no, I understand. Yeah, I think it's yeah. it's kind of a little bit on our part as well. As <laughs> like, uh, we're just I think um, not too sensitive, but maybe like insecure. And like when we ask people, we're already expecting like either a no or somebody asking yeah. a ridiculous sum of money, right. which I well, I hate too. talking about money with performers, but I understand it's necessary. Like, you know, a performer is not. Not that they're not getting anything out of it, but you know, it's it's a lot to ask a college student to take time out of their be busy schedule. If we, maybe we rethought this whole process, and, and we could write some. If you've organized yourself into a bona fide student, undergrad student composer group, maybe you should do that because then you can write for um, some grant money to pay the composers. So there you go. Yeah. Good to know. That's that good. Here, we've got our president and vice president of this future group right here. <laughs> Because I know that is also a problem because um, it would be nice to to pay the performers and mm-hmm. at the same time you guys are on a student budget and yeah. and so it's a problem yeah. that way. But I'm just saying that that is um, 
a, a, an opportunity for you to get some funding for it through the university if you um, wanted to check into that. Yeah, we definitely like to know that because I got a senior product coming up and you have a, a symphony that's been written that might be cool to have it performed. That would be. Yeah. Because that's absolutely. the other thing too, it's not even just getting students. Like if we were yeah. wanted to write for a large ensemble, wind right. ensemble, symphony orchestra, right. you know, whatever, that's, that's... That would be tricky. Yeah, that's, that's, that's well, a big That's probably hurdle. one reason why people buy the uh, electronic versions of the software with all those digitized sounds. Yeah, yeah. Because just to be pragmatic, you know, it's very expensive to hire orchestra. My, I have a friend in Los Angeles that I went to grad school with, and he has a really fine pickup. I, I'm going to call it a pickup orchestra. That's it's it's a really fine quality bunch of of professional musicians that will organize themselves for composers to record their music, and it's $750 an hour, which for all those musicians probably isn't all that much. But if you're the composer that has to dig up $3,000 to pay these guys to, re, it, you know, I, I understand that's a lot of money. Yeah. Um, yeah, so how do you think that as a as a what do you how do you think as a university we could we could start I don't know cuz that that's the other thing too. So when we're talking about performers um it seems new music comes is a very low priority. Well, I I don't I, I like about this a lot. Mm -hmm. Um you know, I listen to the radio and KBYU has uh, Bruno University, of course, has the, even their own uh, TV station. Well, so does you, but they've got it satellite and worldwide. They they um, put their ensembles recordings on the radio all the time. Their choirs, their orchestra, their concerto winner soloists. I mean, I've heard all these things broadcast on the radio. Now, University of Utah also has a radio station. I don't know why that we cannot have some sort of collaboration with our university radio station to feature our own very fine ensembles here. Yeah, that um, might be a conversation we can have. We could probably reach out. Yeah. yeah. I've wondered this for years. Um, there's, I don't see why that would not be possible. Our, our orchestra is very good. Our jazz ensembles are very good. Our composers here are very good. Our performers, are, uh, our choirs, I mean, I think we're really good. We've got a, yeah. a choir that won first place in a worldwide competition. Wow. Yeah. It should be on the radio. Exactly. It should be on our university radio. Yeah, I agree. No, yeah, I agree. Um, but yeah, so talking about you know the choirs, the the bigger ensembles. How how do we? I th I think that some of the music programming going on in the school can be a little bit too traditional for a university. Well, it might be setting. really nice. I don't know how this would work for undergrads, but. It might be nice if there were could be some sort of arrangement made where you could compose um, a piece for an ensemble as part of maybe your senior project or a master's thesis or a doctoral thing to actually have it performed by a bigger ensemble because as you say um, those kind of opportunities are really hard. Yeah, and they're find. harder after you're out of a, a four-year right. university. Right. Yeah. It's even harder than so mm -hmm. getting that experience I think is really valuable for, mm -hmm. for a composer to get. Mm -hmm. Um so yeah, I don't I mean I don't know how we it get that. It takes a lot happen, of organization, but, yeah. but you know, you uh the I suppose the composition faculty would have to um facilitate that. I mean maybe write it into the degree program. I don't really know. But it's certainly worth having a conversation. Yeah. Because that would be wonderful. Or even if they they just provided, you know, maybe after 
the last week of school or something when the opera is over and whatnot. They could just have an orchestra reading day and let you and the orchestra just read through these pieces yeah. or something, you know, on a day that when they're really finished for the year. But that would be invaluable to the composer, student exactly. composers mm-hmm. here. Yeah. Um, I do have one quick question. So as a performer, you've obviously been asked by plenty of composers, even by me, to perform their piece. Right. Now, what's something we can do on our end as a composer to make the experience more enjoyable for the performer? Well, I think, um, like with you, for instance, um, I, I've enjoyed the fact that you will send me a draft of something and I'll say, oh, this works great on a keyboard, or oh, <laughs> this is not idiomatic for the keyboard, and, and then, you know, you'll take it back and do a little rewrite, and, and so it's kind of like a collaborative sort of a policy where you um, are open to suggestions. Because if I were writing for an instrument that I didn't play, I'm not sure that I would know what was idiomatic either. I mean, look, even Tchaikovsky had that problem when he wrote um, the, I get them mixed up, either the piano concerto, uh, it probably was the, the big famous one, um, and, his, and he gave it to uh, a friend to play who was a famous pianist, and the pianist said, this is not even playable. It's, it's not even for the keyboard, and it's a mess, and, and Tchaikovsky really got his nose bent out of shape, and then he fixed it. <laughs> and now everyone plays it. So I enjoy that part of the process. Um, I, I, it's really hard to spend a lot of time learning a really, really, really difficult piece if I don't like it. Yeah, and that, that's another thing I think as composers we need to know when difficulty and virtuosity is required. I don't think you, in order to make new music, it always has to be the hardest thing you can write. Right. Um, and then you know that that's also like, I think the biggest learning experience or one of the biggest learning experiences about having your music performed is realizing those sort of like what's idiomatic and what's not, what works. Mm-hmm. Um, I realized that like when I wrote for Woodwinds. There's a lot of stuff in there that uh, even just like balance sort of things and and all these things that you you kind of get in a classroom setting for an, on a composer track, but it's it's nowhere near as like lasting and impactful as when you actually do it. Um, but uh, yeah, I don't know. Um, nope. Oops. It's a, I think this is going to be like a recurring theme in the podcast. Because yeah. la- last time we did it, somebody else walked into and I guess the paper fell. I guess. Maybe. Well, at least <laughs> a nice person walked yeah, in. <laughs> yeah, but um, I guess that's part of doing it at a university where you don't have to pay exactly. for recording time and that sort of stuff. But yeah. regardless, um, Dr. Jones, what kind of new music uh, do you say is your, like, like, an, like a composer or, or a particular strain of... 20th, 21st century music do you, you say you enjoy the most? Well, as a pianist, I like, um, I like a lot of, uh, and I like to teach it as well, um, a lot of uh, new age style of piano music. It, somehow it's very satisfying, um, and, and if it's good quality, um, there are some new age composers that I like a lot better than others. Um, and I hope I didn't make you both wince, but you did ask me. <laughs> so, but I mean, I'm just thinking of things that I like to play and that I like to teach. Um, I also, I don't know, I like pretty much any, anything um, that, again, is not, is, 
not really difficult and uh, well let me rephrase that that if I can see a pattern to it and I understand what's going on and um, it's not too hideously difficult to play um, that I'm gonna because I'm gonna have to invest a lot of time with it so mm -hmm. I have to like it um, yeah. a lot of uh, a lot of really um, avant-garde kind of music would be in that category for me because it, it takes a tremendous amount of time to learn it um, and so if it's if it's something that's just so incredibly hard to count and there's no traditional patterning in the figuration from the keyboard that you can find um, then that just kind of makes the job a little bit trickier but I like um, that's just for you know keyboard solo stuff most of the time um, um, or a lot of the time I'm asked to play um, you know just a layered part in, in say like a, a more symphonic based score or the, or the film music like David's done you know he's we've had some piano parts and harpsichord parts but they're just you know there's also string parts with it and all that those are a lot easier to play and those are just always fun um, I don't know if that's what you were asking yep. but I, I have kind of kept more tabs on what David has been doing the last couple of years, but let me ask you, Arcadia, what do you, what is your interest right now? What kind of stuff do you write? I remember like the projects that you picked to transcribe for our class, but I'm just curious, what, what do you feel yeah, about these days? I think a lot, a lot has changed for me and my, my ideas and what, what I value in music since, since we had, because I mean, I had classes with you when I was probably like a, a sophomore mm -hmm. was probably the last time, and it's been two years since two that. Years, yeah. And that third year was really crucial for me because that's mm -hmm. when I was taking Comp Seminar 2 and uh -huh. 20th Century Techniques, and I clashed a lot with that, with sort of new music and experimental music, and I just, like, I didn't get it. It made me really angry. Um, and then eventually I f it just kind of all clicked for me, and I understood what all these composers were trying to do and how I almost, like, <clears throat> it's to me it's almost heroic how... Like, if you go from, you know, composers like uh, Stockhausen, Ligeti's, and Alcas, just kind of the, the really experimental, really eccentric composers and, and what they were trying to do. And, I mean, they, they just, they gave, they didn't give up a career, but they put themselves in a really tough position on purpose because they believed in their music so much and how they were pushing it and the sort of boundaries that they were pushing and the sort of experiments that they were doing and sort of all these studies and acoustics and everything that nobody nobody in the pop realm was doing that much or maybe not that in depth. Um, so right now, what interests me in music at this point in time, and this will probably, this might, most likely will change, but right now I'm really interested and how I bridged that gap from cerebral, complex, academic music to something that's accessible, to something that you don't need a four-year um, degree to at least enjoy, or um, and and finding a way to do that without losing, um, without losing like integrity or authenticity or, or something along those lines. Mm -hmm. I think that's something that's really hard to do, and um, you know like. I, th I always think like the jazz greats were really good at doing that, at being able to make music that was really hard for them. It was satisfying for them as musicians and artists, but still was able to keep audience the audience engaged. So I'm trying to go. I'm trying to go into that and kind of achieve that. Um, and you know, coming from you know the composers before me that that have done a lot to push music forward, but have also some of them done a lot to push the audience away. And so trying to just kind of like 
bridge those two edges together, I think is what I'm mostly interested in at the moment. And then still, you know, maintain like a degree of experimentalism and all that sort of stuff. Mm, that's very admirable. Um, I think I, as a performer, I, I also feel like um, it's also my goal to bridge that gap that you're talking about. Um, and that's why, again, why it's helpful to be able to um, collaborate with the composer or have access to the composer to, to if, if it's not understood what was trying to be conveyed, to just be able to talk it over and say, yeah. you know, what does this mean? What am I doing? And things like that. But um, I don't think I could have said that better myself. Yeah. Thank you. <laughs> no, I mean we we have mentioned that before, and you know going back to like your common your uh, your performance practice class, you know you don't need that for new music. Even though the thing with new music is that there, there's no like norms to it, so like a performance practice is sometimes really just uh, just specific to a, a particular piece. Um, but at the same time, you know you do have most of the composers just readily available to do that sort of stuff. Um, so. So so it, it's kind of good in that way, and and I think this is really throwing me off. <laughs> get a trombone. Okay, oh, we're gonna take a little a break to get a trombone. Yeah. That's all right, Tom. Sorry, right. no, <laughs> you're fine. That's my bad. Cause I'm I like, I saw it earlier, and I was like, I don't want to leave it outside of the door. And yeah, it's well, Dr. Maxwell. We talked about yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> well, it's like, oh crap. Because since we're working on recording, so we're gonna get. Oh my god. Yeah. Oh, I don't want to. Really like you're fine. We'll probably have you on for like one of these. What's up? We'll probably have you on for one of these, if you don't mind. Is this like a podcast? Yeah, because we want to try and get, um, who's the new jazz guy? What's his name? Oh, Chris Johnson. Chris Johnson. So I'd like to have him and then you sit in on that and talk music stuff. Yeah, sounds good. All right, thanks. Thank you, guys. That's awesome. All right. And we just go on like nothing just happened. Yeah, we can just cut that out. Okay. So I lost my turn of thought, though. I was trying to keep it going, but... The. Anyways, so we were talking, I think what the, the main idea was the bridging the gap thing. Um, but yeah, I don't know, to me, I, I'd, like to, I'd like to see more new music performed, not necessarily by like us, I don't, want, I, don't, I don't want to make this about me and my music being performed by the orchestra, <laughs> even though that would be really cool. But, and I think the Utah Symphony does a good job of that. They did that with Holst, and they threw, uh, what's it, it was Ligeti's Atmospheres that they threw in there, right? Mm -hmm. Which that's kind of cool, even though it's, it's still like probably like a 50-year-old piece or 40-year-old right. piece, something like that. Um, but I'd like to see that happening more. Because if that's not, ha I, to me, if that's not happening at a university level, and it's barely happening at a professional level, then where, like, where is new music being heard unless you like actively go out and search it? So how do we keep music progressing and moving forward if without getting stuck in tradition? Um, if at a university level, where I think I think traditionally the experimental music's where it's it's kind of lived, um, if we're not doing that on a, at a university level, then where where do we? I mean, there might be some other outlets to do that in, but I think as a university, you're, you you are supposed to be like on the cutting edge of what music is. If, if you're if you're a school of music, you should be on the cutting edge side of what music is doing, where it's going, what it's supposed to be, what the current ideas are, whatever. Right. Yeah. with uh, Dr. Pam Jones. So much fun to talk to her. She's just the nicest beam of light. Yeah, she's, she's just so positive. She's great to see her walking around. I always see her on the elevator. It's because her office is on the fourth floor. Yeah. But, um, yeah, no, she had a lot of 
good tips for us. Um, I got to go on a couple of mini rants, which is one of the reasons I do this podcast, so I can go on my little mini rants that are bubbling inside of me constantly. Um, but yeah, no, it was great talking to her. Um, I would th- I would think it would be a very good reminder to both, well, first of all, to performers listening to the podcast, that if you ever want to um, try new music, you know, don't be afraid of, of, you know, composers here at school. And then, and then, you know, don't be afraid to talk with them and, and work things out with them. If there's something that you feel very uncomfortable with, talk to the composer. And then to our composers who are listening. Um, Same. Same thing. Don't, don't be afraid yeah. to go up to the performance. Cause I, f- I feel like I, I'm, I'm often intimidated to go and, and talk to the performers and, I, I often, I understand, I mean, we're, we're all students and we're all really busy, so I do feel um, somewhat embarrassed to, to do it, but I think it's, it's, it's one of those skills that we have to develop as composers that we, we have to be a little bit of a salesman exactly. when, when we're doing that sort of thing. And, 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 and to not take it as such a personal thing, I think... Yeah. Um, I think I don't know maybe just me during this conversation I, I did I think came came off a little whiny as like <laughs> why why don't performers play my music and it's it's not that um I composers are we're not not a lot of us are super extroverted social beings mm-hmm. <clears throat> and I think that goes for a lot of music majors unless you're a vocalist um yeah. vocalists are pretty extroverted it's weird well, I mean, they have to when they're on stage and they don't have an instrument to hide behind. They have to kind of have this sort of yeah. larger-than-life attitude, which is great. It's, it's awesome. Um, but I found that vocalists, for the most part, are not, are not usually very introverted. They're usually very extroverted and friendly and social people, which is great. But composers are not the case for the mm-hmm. most part. Where, um, Yeah, I'm not – and I don't – I mean, we're just – yeah, we're not super extroverted social, and, and, and sometimes those – weird social interactions are are daunting for us but i think it yeah it goes for both of us we and and that's what this is all about you know it's trying to find that ground where we can all feel comfortable with our fellow music majors and 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 do cool stuff and composers give your music to the performer with as much time as possible and performer use that time to really rehearse the piece and get to know it yeah I just, I just feel like, you know, talking with this performer who's performed so often, you know, is it it very good advice from her. Yeah. It was great. Um, I think I think that was all I wanted to say about the, the conversation. I um, wanted to address my, my whininess, even though it might just be me, be me being insecure about being a composer again. Well, I think, I think it's necessary to kind of let that out and we were just having a simple discussion on that gap and yeah. you know, I don't think it comes across as whiny it's just concerned yeah, yeah. and but I, th- I think I've as of late I've noticed that that gap I don't think is as as prominent as I thought it would yeah. I think it, it is a, a, a I think it's 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 on both parties I, I don't want to ever just be like oh performers need to performance need to do new music but well composers need to do some outreach too and 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 go out and 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 just because performers have their ensembles, there's not like a composer ensemble. So performers, 
have their ensembles where they can be, where they can make friends and have relationships with other music majors. We as composers, I'm we're trying to do that now with the composer circle, um, but <clears throat> with performers and stuff, we really only come in contact with them if we're either in one of their ensembles or if they're in a class with us. And in a class setting, you can't. It's not really a time yeah. to be friendly with people. You know, you don't want to be. I mean, once you're done being a freshman, then you you start. You you can stop. Mm-hmm. being the clown in, in classroom and, and talking when teachers are talking, that sort of stuff. So that that's, that's really it. Um, I think we, yeah, we need to, as composers, also be more proactive about approaching performers. And the other thing I wanted to mention, too, is that making um, the whole thing about collaborating with, with performers, I think is really important in, in having the performer understand your end goal and, and for you to be able to, I think it's it's a good exercise as composers for us to verbalize our our vision, our idea, or whatever we're we're trying to go for. Mm-hmm. Um, if we're trying to explain it to a performer whilst we're either writing the piece or during a rehearsal, or whatever, um, just not shy away from from at least giving them something to know what this piece is about. I think it's very helpful for a performer to understand mm-hmm. what it is that I'm trying to do with a piece. Exactly. Great. Well, this has been episode number two of uh, State of the Art Podcast. Up next, we will talk to Dr. Steve Rowens. That one is already recorded. (laughs) You just need to edit it. Um, Find some time. Finals are next week, so um, we'll try and find some time. Um, But, yeah, we'll talk to Dr. Steve Rowens, who's great. He's uh, the head of the composition area here at the University of Utah. He's very gracious to come down here and talk with us. Did we have an interruption for that one? No. That one, we don't have that interruption. We didn't. I think I heard the door click a couple times and no interruption. We forgot to put a sign and everything. So. Yeah. But yeah, we'll have uh, Dr. Rowans and uh, we'll see what's up next after that. Okay. Bye-bye. Welcome to this. Welcome to this. I don't know if that was on purpose or not, but that was awesome. It was, but now you're going to wait for me to do it every time. Welcome to this. (laughs) Oh, my God. (laughs) I couldn't hold it. It's been a long day. Welcome to the State of the Art Podcast. (laughs) Sure. Okay. <laughs> All right.